turn your microphone on. Um, it's always really good to <clears throat> recap vision about who we are and where we're going. And that's been the purpose of these last number of weeks. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've been looking at our, our mission statement, our, our vision statement of meet God, meet friends, and make a difference, <clears throat> which is our kind of um, bullet point way of explaining who we are as a church. So if you're in a coffee shop and someone said, so tell me about your church, you could, you could rattle it off in these little kind of springboard phrases. <clears throat> and we've looked at, over the past few weeks, we've looked at the fact that we are here to meet God, that we have the freedom to come to him. We're free because of what Jesus has done for us, that we can have a relationship, a restored relationship with our Father because of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is that we can meet God in worship and, and coming to, to know who he is and him knowing us fully as well. And we, we've reflected on the fact that we are here to meet friends and it's about authentic relationship with God, but also authentic relationships uh, between one another. And not just that, but actually that we have a part to play in the body of Jesus. Now, it'd be very easy just to stop there. But actually, the fact that we have a part to play, part to play in what? A part to play in what? We have a part to play. That's great. Amen. But in what? And that's where the next one comes in. Make a difference. And we're going to look at this over the next couple of weeks, what it means to make a difference. Because it is incredibly important, especially these days, in our culture and our society, which has been labeled by people much more intelligent uh, than any of us. Kind of, it's been called post-modernity. And in post-modernity, people are less concerned about whether something makes sense, <clears throat> and they're more concerned about whether it works. So people want to know, does something actually work? Does it make a difference? Or does it not? So it doesn't matter if it logically adds up. Does it work? Does it make a difference? Which is why we ask whenever we're doing testimonies to tell us your story, which is how did you come to know Jesus? And the second thing, what difference does knowing Jesus make in your life? Because people want to know, does what you follow make a difference? Now, I've been on a bit of a journey over the past 10 to 15 years in my Christian faith about one particular aspect. And it's one that was, that's been paralleled with, with a journey that the church has made as well, which we'll explore. I'll mention a bit more about it later on. But and not just this church, but also the wider evangelical and charismatic church has actually followed a similar journey. Because whenever I was growing up in Northern Ireland, I was... I was surrounded by really good teaching, really good uh, sound, evangelical, Bible-based teaching. And um, my whole idea was about um, the gospel meant that you'd get saved to go to heaven. You'd get your blue passport that would take you on the glory train to heaven. And that's what it was all about. It was about saving your soul for eternity. Um, and I didn't want to be left behind. I wanted to be with Jesus. I wanted to be in heaven when I died. So kind of it was like the ultimate insurance policy. So that's what it, was, that's what it felt like. And then once you became a Christian, the, the, the job was then to go and get more people to come and join the glory train to heaven as well. And it was a little bit like the game of tag you used to play where you'd go out and catch someone, bring them back to your den, and then go out and get some more and bring them back and leave them in your den and go out and get some more. It was all about getting people and joining the band. And we have verses such as these with the fundamental verses. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. That's what Paul wrote. For Christ also suffered... <clears throat> 
for the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And then the classic one, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now that's brilliant, and I hold fast to all of that. I still hold fast to that fundamental truth that we need to be saved from our sins and that only Jesus can do that, can provide forgiveness of our sins, cleansing from unrighteousness and communion and restoration with God. I hold fast to that, probably stronger than I ever have before. But I realized I became a Christian whenever I was 11. And the Lord willing, I'm giving myself and telling him about 81 till I go under glory. Is that all right? Everyone's gone, not too sure, Phil. Um, well, I am being generous to myself. 81, that means from the age of 11 to the age of 81 is 70 years of waiting for heaven. If that's the limitation of what the gospel is, it's your passport to heaven, then I've got 70 years to sit and wait <clears throat> until I go through the pearly gates. There's got to be more. In fact, Alpha, whenever it was kind of advertising itself, still does this. One of its taglines is to ask the question, is there more to life than this? And so I would also say, is there more to the Christian life than this? Kind of saying the prayer and then waiting patiently, being a good boy or girl until you go home to be with Jesus and that's deal done and that's the gospel. If that's the gospel, it's a very small gospel. I think there's something bigger. Because, excuse me, the thing is that we, this is what it says in Ephesians, for it is grace you have been saved. I believe that passionately. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves so that none of us can boast. It's not by works. We don't earn our salvation. Only by grace. For we are God's handiwork. Literally God's poem. God's piece of art. We are God's poem created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved. We are saved from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, of of damnation, of evil. We are saved from the kingdom of self and sin, but we're not just left there. We are saved to something. We are saved to life eternal. We are saved to the kingdom of God. Saved from the kingdom of darkness, saved into his kingdom of glorious light. That's what we're told. And so we come to this thing that we are part of the kingdom of God. Jesus came on the scene and after his baptism, he enters into his ministry phase and he immediately breaks into this The kingdom of God is near. And the kingdom of God was one of those phrases that Jesus used again and again and again. It's also transliterated as as the kingdom of heaven as well. And Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And throughout his ministry and his message, the kingdom of God was really key. He tells us to pray for it when he tells us how to pray. He says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. He says, seek it first and then everything else will fall into place. He encourages us to pursue it in some of the parables. He says, it's like a treasure. Go looking for it. Sell all you have to get it. It's that valuable. He says to cultivate it in the parables of the sower. Cultivate the kingdom of God within you. He tells you, he tells us all that the kingdom of God is near, but he also says it is also within you. And this whole concept of the kingdom of God, what actually is it? There's been so much confusion about what the kingdom of God actually is. 
And there's been a number of different emphases over the years. Some people have thought, actually, Jesus just started the kingdom of God. We live in the kingdom of God now. And so all we have to do is just work our socks off to um, kind of keep Jesus happy. And that's like, that's like works, okay? And then another emphasis is that Jesus came, but actually the kingdom of God is whenever he returns in all his glory and makes everything okay again. And so that, that involves an awful lot of faith is that at some point, everything is going to be okay. And people have vacillated between the two. But actually, it's a case, as so many times, it's a case of both. Throughout Paul's letters, throughout Jesus' talking about the kingdom of God, the reason why there seems to be a dichotomy of now and not yet is because that's the reality. Jesus inaugurated something, a new age, a new kingdom way of doing things. But it's not going to be completed until he returns in glory. It is the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. So I'd grown up thinking my, my role in my life as a Christian was to get kind of people from here to heaven, to get earth to heaven. And I've come to realize increasingly over the past decade or so, maybe a bit longer, that actually the Jesus way is not getting you from earth to heaven, but it's about getting heaven to earth. That's what Jesus typifies bringing heaven to earth. We're going to be, hopefully, if Sarah indulges us, we're going to be singing a song later on by a guy called Andy Flanagan. We've sung it many times. Bring heaven to earth, Lord. And, and it's, it's a prayer song which expands upon how we can see God's kingdom here on earth. We're hopefully going to be singing that later. But it's an idea of heaven to earth. And actually, this is ultimately seen or beautifully seen and pictured in the incarnation. God with us. The word becoming flesh. God, Jesus, heaven coming to earth. That's the movement of God to us. Before we can get to heaven, heaven has come to us. The kingdom of God has come among us. Heaven to earth. The kingdom of God is not a territory or a place. It is not like you know, the, the kingdom of, um, what, what's the one in, in Shrek called? Duloc, whatever it is, over the hill and far away. It's not like that. There isn't a land which is the kingdom of God. My side isn't. It's not a territory. The kingdom of God expressed, especially in Bible times, and the understanding of the word was less about a place and was actually about the kingship of God. The kingship of God, his rule and his reign. Not about his place. The kingship or the kingdom of God is where and when God's will is done. And it's perfectly seen in the life of Jesus. The kingdom of God is where God's will is done. Now we have a very limited understanding of what kingdom actually means because for, I would say, all of us, all we've really known is, is what's called um, a constitutional monarchy with Queen Elizabeth. And that's based on democracy. And so we, we have a kind of very civil understanding of what monarchy is, which is all about mutual consent and all that. But actually, when, when it talks about kingship and kingdom in the Bible, it's a much bigger thing. It's talking about a sense of absolute power. Now, there's a bit in Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat that says, when Pharaoh cracks a joke, then you chortle for days, whether it's funny or not. It's that kind of thing. If the king speaks, you listen. When the king says, jump, you say, hi, hi, and what do you want me to sing while I do it? It's that kind of thing. Ultimate power. 
And so we are asked, we are commanded, commended by Jesus to pray, your kingdom come, your rule, your reign, your ways come among us on this earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is not fluffy clouds and golden harps and Philadelphia adverts. Heaven is where God's will is done. Belinda Carlisle sang that song, Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Actually, it can be where God's will is done. That is heaven. And we are called to pray for this to become a reality. And Jesus' incarnation showed heaven coming to earth. That was one thing. But Jesus' life showed us what a kingdom life actually looks like. This is why to know what the kingdom of God looks like, feels like, tastes like, if we want to know what the kingdom of God's values are, its outworkings, we have to look to Jesus. If you want to know what the values of a kingdom are, you look to the king. And this is another one of the reasons why we bang on and on about the fact that we need to read God's word. We need to know the gospels. We need to read them. We need to breathe them. We need to imbibe them. We need to live by them because in that way, we get to know the king. If we get to know the king, we get to know the values of the king's kingdom. That's why we need to be reading God's word, not because we get bonus points when we get to heaven, although that would be quite nice. It's about knowing the king. And so what do we see? You see, the thing is, if Jesus, if, if the gospel is just about getting our passport into heaven, if it was only about Jesus coming and dying for us, then why on earth did he live? Literally, why on earth did he live? Why did he teach? Why did he heal people? If all he was coming for was to be a sacrifice. He came to bring heaven to earth and to demonstrate the life perfectly lived under the kingship and rule of God. And so what do we see? Well, we've got too limited time to go through every verse of the four Gospels during this sermon. But I would encourage you, go and read the Gospels if you want to know. If you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, you look at a person, you look at the king, read the Gospels. But in one instance, John the Baptist um, sends his disciples to Jesus. Because the type of Messiah Jesus was being, the type of king that he was being was not how everyone expected. He didn't have the sword and the shield and he wasn't kicking out the Romans. So they're saying, what kind of Messiah are you? Are you the one or should we look for someone else? And Jesus replied like this. He said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleaned, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. When they wanted to know, what kind of king are you? Jesus said this. It backs up what he said when he first inaugurated his, his ministry at the synagogue in, uh, in Capernaum where he says, he reads from uh, the prophet and he says um, that the spirit of the Lord is on me for he's, he's given me, anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to announce the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus' life was much more than a life of the ultimate humanitarian, which I think the world likes to paint Jesus as. They're okay with accepting Jesus was real and historical character, but he was a good teacher who did good things. And he was quite good at storytelling and all that and wasn't ashamed the way he died. I fear that sometimes we do the same thing in the church, 
that we just build Jesus up as some kind of ultimate humanitarian when there's so much more going on. So in Jesus' picture of what it means to be king, and the picture of what it means to be kingdom, who does he hang out with? The kings and the emperors. He hangs out with the poor, with the broken. He hangs out with the sick, with the outcast, with those who are unclean. He hangs out with the sinners. He hangs out with those who are oppressed. He hangs out with the normal people. He hangs out with those who have gone wayward, from the true faith. And he challenges those who consider themselves self-righteous. He challenges those who, if we had a chance, we could read Amos chapter 5, talks about kind of cacophony of noise that just irritates God because their life is not of the kingdom of God, but their noise makes the right noises. Jesus judged religiousness and he was full of love and grace and he was full of truth and justice. These are the pictures of the kingdom of God made flesh among us. It's interesting to note the people who Jesus healed, the stories we've got of them, um, they sometimes can seem quite random, but actually a majority of the people that Jesus healed are people who have, because of their affliction, because of their difficulties, have been excluded from the community, have been pushed out of the people of God, who are on the edges, who've been said, you're rejected, you're not part of this. And in Jesus healing them, it wasn't just Jesus doing a bit of a nice miracle to prove who he was. He was demonstrating his job is to restore and bring back those who are outside into the kingdom of God, where all are welcome. That's a picture of the kingdom of God. Because at the heart of this kingship, the heart of the kingdom of God, is this word. Shalom. Now we know this, don't we? We know it from a million Christian greetings cards. We know it from the fact that um, in, in Hebrew, it's the word for hello, it's the word for peace. But we also are aware, perhaps, that this word shalom, whilst meaning peace, means such a big amount more. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means rightness. It means one of the most common words today, most popular words, it means well-being. That things are right. He came to restore shalom in people's lives. He came to restore shalom to the people of Israel. He came to restore shalom to the people of this world. But the thing is, we particularly over the past uh, kind of half decade or so in the evangelical, the charismatic kind of side of the church, we've taken this concept of shalom and we've minimized it, we've individualized it, we've personalized it and we have made it small. Jesus came to save us from sin, calling people to repent. Yes, amen, but it's a bigger repentance. He's saying actively turn away from the ways and values and powers of this world and instead turn and follow my way, the way of the kingdom, the way of the king of kings. See, our vision of the gospel is far too small about what Jesus was up to. Perhaps one of the most famous um, verses in the world we had up just a moment ago, for God so loved the church, didn't he? Isn't that right? God so loved those who said yes to him. God loved so much the people who tithed correctly. God loved so much the ones who volunteered for the rota. He's not so keen in the ones he didn't. No. What does it say? 
God loved the world so much. The world. There's a phrase, I think it's Abraham Kuyper that says, there is not a place or a thing on this world where Christ does not shout out over it, mine. He came to save the world. And we have domesticated the most revolutionary message of global significance and we've reduced it to a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, the odd time during the middle of the week and maybe we're on a road to the help out in one of the clubs or outreaches that we do. There was um, a Bible mini-series that came out a little while ago. Um, we've used a few clips from it. We've used photos from it. Um, um, yeah, that's okay. I'm just checking where I am. <laughs> And uh, there's a great scene. It's a, it's a great series. It's just slightly disturbing. The guy who plays Jesus has an uncanny resemblance to Brad Pitt. Um, <laughs> that's a bit, a bit disturbing. Anyway, there's a great scene where Jesus is in the boat with Peter and he's calling Peter to follow him. And Peter says to Jesus, what are we going to do? And Jesus leans down to him and says, we're going to change the world going to change the world that's the vision of the kingdom of God that's the kingdom of God we're going to change the world so a couple of weeks ago we looked at uh, some of the aspects of what it meant to meet God Um, and what are we called to be does anyone remember we're called to be disciples well done you get half a point there's still something missing we're called to be disciples someone said it nice disciples shut up (laughs) we are called to be disciple making disciples we are called to be disciple making disciples and what do we say disciple meant it was an apprentice of Jesus an apprentice was a person who follows the way of the master and we're meant to be encouraging other people to be followers of the way of Jesus, to propagate the kingdom. Jesus came and modeled the kingdom of God. And then he got a few people to remind him and said, this is how you do kingdom of God living. And they were go to go and, and demonstrate to others the way of kingdom of God living and so on and so on and so forth. To be followers of the way of Jesus. The original term for Christians, followers of the way. To bring heaven, the rule of God, to earth. We have been apprenticed to do this, to continue Jesus' work. Now, over the past number of years, someone who's really helped me understand this is this theologian, a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, some of you might recognize him, some of you don't. His story is powerful, but yet quite tragic. Um, He was in Germany during the years of the Second World War. Um, He wrote astounding theology. His his work was never completed because he was involved in... um, the, he was a double agent, basically, for the, for the secret intelligence for the Nazis, whilst also being part of a plot to kill Hitler. He pastored a church. He was a deep theologian. Um, he was arrested for the, the plot was discovered, and he was put into a um, um, concentration camp. And he was brought out only a matter of short days before the World War ended. And he was brought out into the center of the courtyard, completely naked, and he was killed He was hung with a very tight cord a few days before the the war ended. Some of his theology has incredibly challenged me. One of the things, and I mean this very simplified way of understanding, um, very simplified, he has an idea that our job as disciples of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, our job is to make earth 
so much like heaven so that when Jesus returns, there's very little difference. Hear that again. Our job is to make this earth so much like the kingdom of heaven so that when he returns, there's very little difference. This week, um, Helen, myself, and Neve have been in London. And uh, we were there for a few days, and we were on the train, but we were driving back, and we got that um, wonderful, blessed text from Reuben on behalf of um, Reuben and Jacob and Owen, who were staying behind. This marvelous text that you kind of just crave after and dream that you'll get. And it wasn't, you know, we're still alive. That, that would have been nice, but you know, it was even better than that. And it wasn't, you know, we've missed you, my darling parents. It wasn't that. It was, we've tidied the house. (laughs) The joy on Helen's face in particular was remarkable. I was quite relieved too. Um, So we came into the house and we opened up and lo and behold, the house was really beautifully tidy. And we wandered around. It was really, well done, Ruben. Well done, Jacob. Well done, Owen. It was brilliant. Um, and then within kind of 10, 15 minutes, you know, there, there was, um, well, we'll, we'll sort that washing out that's in that pile. And, um, and we'll, we'll take some of those dishes out of the dishwasher. And, and we just kind of finished off what was needed. But there was very little to do because they'd done such a great job in tidying the house, getting it sorted the way that Helen likes it. <laughs> Are we going to get this house sorted the way Jesus wants it? So that when he returns, there's very little for him to do. That's our call. That's kingdom of God. You see, it's interesting that actually the church has been at the very heart of this for centuries. From the very, very outset. I'll go through those again in a moment. From the very heart, the church has been the heart of community, of social provision. Even in the New Testament, the church was looking after widows and orphans when there was no social provision around. And then we have in the monastic tradition, the monastic roots, we have the foundation of education and health care. That's where you went. If you were ill, you went to the, the monastery to be looked after, to learn. You went and heard from the monks, but actually it didn't stop there. The Reformation said, actually, it shouldn't be just for the highly educated, the monks, and it shouldn't just be for the ultra-rich. Reading God's word should be for everyone. And so the printing press came about and printing Bibles in people's vernacular so they could read it. But you had to teach the normal people to read. And that spread to men, then it spread to women and children as well. And so we've got an education system that comes around. Alongside that, you have people in the 19th century who are working hard in kind of workhouses and children who are going up chimneys and children who are going between wafts and wafts and things to do with weaving and stuff. I don't know what they're called. But they're incredibly dangerous. And so you have people like Lord Shaftesbury, whose statue of Eros is in Piccadilly Circus, who campaigned and got reference for looking after children's labor and making sure that they were educated. You've got, um, you've got the Sunday school movement which evolved into our education system. You have William Wilberforce and you have Hannah Moore who championed the fact that we shouldn't have slavery because actually the Bible ain't hot on slavery no matter what people used to say. And they campaigned tirelessly and then slaves were free, the abolition of slavery. And then we have Elizabeth Fry who said, I don't care what these prisoners have done. They deserve to be treated like human beings made in the image of God. So we have the prison reformation. And then it goes through, we have 
liberation theology which said those who are downtrodden in the name of Jesus can be set free, should not be oppressed. And then you have the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King and the anti-apartheid movements and actually the births of feminism and women's rights born within the church. These things have their roots within Bible-believing evangelical Christians. Isn't that good to know? Read more. Read more church history. It's inspiring and a little bit embarrassing at times. Most of these were rooted in Christianity seeking to bring heaven to earth for the entire world. Many of them have been taken over by society, taken over by secular agencies, taken over by ideologies which are humanist, progressivist, and liberal. And so for a while, the kind of evangelical side of the church kind of rebelled a little bit against that and were a bit too scared of the whole kind of works thing and so emphasized the faith and the salvation side and lost something. But since the church has been sidelined over the past number of years, this is why more recently the evangelical Protestant side of the church have actually become increasingly aware of the of the need to be involved in social action. There's been a reawakening of the mission of God, of a kingdom sense, not just of a a parochial church sense. We read it in James chapter 2 about the fact that we are faith and we are works. Then Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we we are saved by grace to do good works. And Amos chapter 5 says, do you know what? Your services may be brilliant, the best band, the best singing, the best whatever, but if you've not got justice and mercy and righteousness, it's just a noise. We've learned that God's heart is to transform, restore, renew, and redeem not just our hearts, but our churches, our communities, our world. And so we have meet God, we have meet friends, And we have make a difference in the church. This church has woken up to that over the past 10 or so years. There's a quote from David Watson that says, Both gospel proclamation and social action are equally important. They are like two blades of a pair of scissors. If either is missing, the cutting edge is lost. If it's just faith, it ain't working. If it's just works, it ain't working. If it's just social action, it won't cut the the mustard. If it's just... uh, Gospel proclamation, just words, it won't cut it. It needs to be both. And we learned that. This church used to have a different tagline. It was uh, known as um, to know Christ and to make him known. Not dissimilar to do you know him? Which is you know, particularly evangelistic, particularly about discipleship. And slightly broader. We were very evangelistically focused. And then by the move of the Holy Spirit within a number of people in the church, and even our, especially our young people getting involved in missional activities over in Manchester in particular, with, with the Message Trust, with those guys, it awoken us, awakened us to the fact that we are a part of a mission of God to bring God's kingdom here on earth. And so through lots of different things, we came up with meet God, meet friends, and we have a responsibility, a kingdom responsibility to make a difference. And do you know what the irony is? When our mission statement was purely evangelistic, we saw a handful of people become Christians. When we were opened up to the bigger vision of God, we've seen many more people become Christians and follow the way of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? God knows 
what he's doing. And let me tell you, he is about his business around this country. Here's just a little snapshot of what is going on in the UK, led by people or having foundations which are Christian, evangelical, charismatic, Bible-believing Christians are involved in CAP, Christians Against Poverty. We know that. Our food bank and the Trussell Trust, Christian Roots. We have the Message Trust, a massive mover that kind of get gospel um, proclamation and action, social action together. And they are Eden teams where people move Move on to an estate and incarnationally live with people and share their lives and share the gospel. We have Oasis with their academies opening up schools and places where schools are failing. We have Hope for Justice in the Snowdrop Snowdrop Project that Lara Bundaka runs about those who are being trafficked. We have Tear Fund. We have um, Redeeming Our Communities and Deborah Green working with agencies around the, uh, a particular locality, both secular and Christian, to redeem the community. We have Hope um, Into Action, which is an amazing charity where churches, someone just realized there's lots of money in churches. And so they said, okay, People who've got a bit of money, stick it into buying a house. And in that house for five years, we'll put in people who are homeless with very strict kind of you know, guidance and supervision and stuff. Then at the end of your tenure, you'll get your money back. It's been an amazing success that people are now housed and they've come to know the Lord Jesus. We have reached beyond. We've just had a team come back from Lesbos after doing an amazing work out there. We've got renewed well-being, meeting the, the, the need that, huge need about mental well-being and social isolation. And these are all from people who believe Jesus Christ is Lord and want to bring his kingdom here on earth. Amen? Amen. This is what the church is doing around the country in the name of Jesus. I had the privilege of going to um, a summit. It was called the Gather Summit. And our friend Roger Sutton um, chaired it and put it together of lots of unity movements amongst the churches, highlighting what is going on around the country. And I was privileged to be on a panel kind of explaining what we've been, we've been up to. Um, Roger's put a book together. It's called The Gathering Momentum. If you've not read this, we have copies of it. You should read it because it tells you what God is doing throughout the church in this country. And it is amazing to see what God is doing. The church is becoming more central to the existence and well-being of our nation than probably any time since the kind of reformation of, of, in the 19th century. The church is becoming so central that Peter Smith, wherever you are again, he has um, worked with, and I'll just bring that Cinnamon Faith Action Audit a couple of years ago, and did this audit of what goes on in Craven. And I don't know if these are, these are probably out of date, and I'll probably explain them incorrectly, but these are the kind of things. 1.2 million pounds worth, is that just for this region, this area, that faith communities, of which, don't whisper too loudly, mainly are Christian, are making a difference financially to the social provision in this area. Last week we went to, um, or a couple of weeks ago, Peter put together a, a kind of a forum where uh, the, the agencies were engaged with the church. And what the church is doing in this area is speaking volumes for the gospel, seeing God's kingdom coming. And it's making a difference. Our food bank is making a difference. The Cap Job Club, the Cap Debt Center is making a difference. The Wellbeing Cafe is making a difference. The Lunch Club is making a difference. Our youth and children's provision are making a difference because we're wanting to see God's kingdom come. I have a, just a slight issue with the term social action. Peter and I often joke about this, don't we, Peter? And I, I, didn't, I couldn't actually put it into terms why I don't like it, Peter. I'll tell you now. 
I don't like the term social action. I prefer the term kingdom action because that's what we're about. We're about kingdom action. We're not just another social service. We are about bringing the values of God's kingdom here in this place, about redeeming our communities, redeeming broken families, restoring broken relationships, telling people that they are worth something when the whole of society says you ain't. And what is that summed up in? It's summed up in this. A couple of years ago, we were, just finished with this, we were doing the Skipton Gala Gala. <laughs> and I was really not looking forward to it. Anyone who knows, I was going, I really don't want to be a part of this. Because it just feels a bit cheesy having a band on the back of a wagon. So we put, we put the band on the back of the wagon, the Do You Know I'm Band, and we headed out and we were kind of surfing along like this because of the road. <laughs> And this first particular time that we did it, it was going up the high street. There were thousands of people around the area. And for some reason, we ended up just stopping because of kind of a tailback. And so we, the band, were on this truck with a whole pile of some of you behind us in your Do Do You Know Him t-shirts on a blisteringly hot day in the very center of Skipton Town High Street. And what were we doing? We were singing, Build Your Kingdom Here. Build your kingdom here. And you know what? It felt incredibly prophetic. It felt incredibly powerful. And we felt that we were shouting to the powers that be, this belongs to the King of Kings. Build your kingdom here. Our prayer is truly in words and actions, in faith and in deeds. We say your kingdom and all its values come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, starting with my heart, starting with my small group, my family, my group of friends, our church, the church, this community, your kingdom come. Just imagine if Jesus was sat on a throne as king of Skipton, of Craven, of the UK. Your kingdom come. Amen.